coming to you live, but not really. It is all pomp and no circumstance with Ryder Richards on LetUsThinkAboutIt.com, the amateur hour you should never tune into. Welcome back. This is Ryder Richards, and I promised you an episode on camouflage, but you're going to get a precursor. You're going to get something a little bit different today. And I'm sorry about that, but I thought these were good ideas that we needed to cover first. These ideas tie a little more into mimetic desire and sacrifice, but also we really get into this idea of how violence is provoked or inscribed, and that leads into camo as well. So we talked a little bit about this last time, and we'll get into it later, but perhaps sacrifice from excess, as Bataille would say, or jealousy from mimetic rivalry? Maybe those can actually just be too complicated. What if there's actually a simpler solution that violence is provoked by fantasy? <laughs> yeah, so anyway, most of this comes from Benjamin Bratton's book, Dispute Plan to Prevent Future Luxury Constitution, <laughs> which is just a great title. I love the book. And he didn't make any of those claims about sacrifice or anything else. Uh, those are all just ideas I'm throwing out there. But one of the key points in his text is that we imagine defenses and we imagine things to protect ourselves from the future. And that actually provokes in others the idea of violence, which creates a crappy future for all of us. Now, this is because our process of turning ideas, that is fantasy, into the image form, which is really a simulation of how the fantasy would work in real life. Well, this makes us want to enact that simulation, that image form into reality. So really, the point here is be careful of the ideas you have, because they want to become true. The ideas in this episode are great, but they're mostly kind of complicating the notion of mimetic desire, as I've mentioned, and this applies to both the individual and the state, so we're going to talk about both of those, too. And this, of course, will help us out next episode, maybe. <laughs> it might just complicate things even more. But that's all if I don't get too distracted again by how desires form reality and how our mimetic desires are socially programmed and blah, 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 blah. You get it, right? But yes, so stop talking and let's get into the show. Part one, the costume. Jean Genet wrote a play. Uh, it's called The Balcony, and this had three versions, and they were sort of scattered out between 1956 and 1962. The setting is a small town where there is a revolution brewing. Many of the city leaders, the judge, the magistrate, the chief of police, and the priest, of course, are all under enormous pressure, right, from the citizens of this community. And they all, you know, to blow off some steam, go to the local brothel to enjoy the sadomasochistic pleasures and relief provided by the talented sex workers. Yeah, however, this revolution becomes full-blown riots in the street, right? It's getting bigger and crazier, and this rowdy, angry citizen crowd is getting closer and closer to the brothel. They're approaching it. Now, these scared, feckless cowards that run the city, well, they force the sex workers to trade clothes with them so they can slip out the back. Now, meanwhile, the riot, this revolution, it approaches the brothel, but as it does, the energies start to sort of dissipate and wane as the sun rises and people are all of a sudden left standing around. Now the sex workers, they decide to come outside. But of course the only clothes they have are the vestments of authority left behind by the cowardly leaders. So they don the garb, 
And as they come outside, the sun rises behind them, and this oddly signals an end to the darkness. And the citizens greet them enthusiastically, with reverence, happy to find someone to finally take this role of authority in this sort of new void that the revolution itself created. The sex workers, now attired in the garb of authority, are granted the authority by the lost crowd. <laughs> Right? So this populace who briefly rioted, they're in this kind of habitual rut of desiring leaders, even though they want to overthrow them. And really, the costumes of office are enough for them. I mean, who cares who wears the costume? Because we all know people are shaped to the role society confers upon them. Now, the habits of office and society's expectations create the grooves, the, the sort of personality. These are the deep ruts from which subjectivity is born. Now, the general, right, for instance, inevitably becomes a loud and brash kind of guy, like, go get him, right? And the judge righteously becomes judgmental. And, of course, the politician somehow becomes charmingly compromised. Yet, let's say that the more subversive truth is in the void of authority. So one ending of the play has the former sex workers setting up the government in the brothel. So once the den of iniquity, it is now the new state of constituted power. Now, darkly humorous, of course, they still employ the same sadomasochistic practices, only this time in the bureaucratic legal form. So the petty sadistic punishments that really whip the citizens into shape yeah, they crave that. They desire it. Or maybe they're demeaning and withholding from these same citizens. And these are actually treatments that the people are perversely comforted by. Part 2. Inscribed Violence So we can see how this need to replicate our ingrained stereotypes can be tied to mimetic desire. But how far does mimetic desire go? Janae's play makes it seem sadly programmatic because even as we rebel, we want to replace the leaders with a replica. Now, this may be due to us having comfort with a type of leader and maybe we're conditioned to have somebody in charge tell us what to do and so we have security, but perhaps it's also that we simply don't have new ideas. We don't have a model like a mimetic model in place to imagine forwards. Now, consider that perhaps even the rebellion is not a release of rage through jealousy or wanting, as René Girard might say, and perhaps it's not an economic balancing through sacrifice due to excess, as George Bataille might say. What if it's just dumbly reactive? What if we just follow a prescriptive plot, just like a call and response? We're just programmed. Now, Benjamin Bratton says, most things actually happen twice, the story, then the act. The story prefigures and predicts the act. Reality is already planned. The story or fantasy, um, it has its own will to become manifest in reality. And we are merely the vehicle that it drives. But of course, before the story, we do have this fantasy, right? The imagining. So something prods you to react, to get your juices flowing. Your fantasy sort of weaves up a notion, and you start to turn it into an image or a form. Bratton refers to this as the image form, which is a simulation, of course. Now, that really just means you're simulating how your fantasy would work in reality because you're tweaking and testing this image form in your head. Now, to bring this simulation to life, you must de-simulate it. That is, to take it from thought and plan to make it real. 
So for example, an architect is, let's say he's just walking along and he sees a building with a lousy entryway and he's provoked to fantasize, I don't know, a better entrance. Now, once he has created the image form, I mean, that is, he has now simulated his better idea into a plan. Well, yeah, he feels compelled to make it real, to see it happen in reality. Now, another example might be a painter. A painter may have an idea, or <laughs> who knows, maybe not, right? Some people just attack the canvas, which kind of skips some steps and gets to something else. But anyway, let's pretend this painter does have an idea, and this requires a series of steps to bring to life his ideas. Now, this is the alchemy of fantasy converted into simulation, then desimulated into the real world, into an object, a concrete thing. But just like that architect, right? Your new entryway, or painting, or even the sentences that come out of your mouth, right? These end up in the concrete world, and they provoke an alternate fantasy from other people that want to destroy that reality you just created. Now, knowing this attack will be forthcoming, your original fantasy embodies defensive mechanisms within itself, within its structure. So the idea itself comes into reality with a defensive posture, and this is the fend-off anticipated attacks. So that is, our process of thought means that way back in the imagining phase, in the fantasy, it's already imagining these kind of alternative fantasies that it will provoke once it gets out into the world. So your fantasy dreams its own attack and potential death, and oddly enough, when this does sort of manifest into reality as castle walls and turrets or spiky fences or something, then other people's curious self wonders how they could overcome, counter, destroy the challenge, which then provokes them to actually want to do it, right? And so you can see how this gets cyclical here. Now, the example that Bratton actually gives is post-terrorist architecture. So after 9-11, all buildings had these major security concerns designed into them. For instance, the easy ones are things like balustrades out front and lots of cameras, right? And this kind of sophisticated, seemingly spacious entrances that once you start looking around, you realize they can be opened or closed instantly as they are tactically designed to thwart various terrorist scenarios. And of course, we can't help but think, hmm, how exactly do I dodge those cameras or get through those balustrades? Would a Mini Cooper fit? Hmm, it worked in that one movie. Yeah, so every heist movie also features a character who says something like, it's not about the money, it's the challenge. So right, they go after breaking into something impossible like Fort Knox or cracking the uncrackable safe, or maybe they steal cars from a moving train, who knows? And so as the game escalates, where the person who designs the armored transport for money, right, they must all of a sudden be thinking like a thief. So they flip positions. They, they fantasize the challenge to defend against the challenger. So these challenges are a type of threat. And the defense becomes offense. It can become ostentatious. It can actually dare you. It's to the point that some vehicles and men are essentially mounted weaponry, right? They're presenting offensive capacity as deterrence or threat. So just remember, everything happens twice. Once in the imagining, and then once the story is tested by reality. Now, in this way, all stories are prophetic. And that is because they have a deep desire to be fulfilled. For instance, yeah, think about this. Scientists are seriously trying to clone dinosaurs right now. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Or make lightsabers. That's real science right now. I mean, this is weird because we're actively desimulating fantasy into reality, which is, of course, the second time the story happens is going to be like Darth Velociraptor slicing your belly open. <laughs> but yeah, um, seriously, though, uh, let's also consider this uh, terrorism idea that Bratton talks about. 
because he says a lot of it happens through architectural provocation. Uh, and this is kind of weird, right? It's, it's like blaming the victim here, but he says you make epic centers that taunt, well, you invite destruction. So one means of avoiding attack is to flatten and disperse everything. It's to camouflage your society, to make all buildings the same, have no central hub, so there can be no site of symbolic attack. That way there can never be any asymmetrical gains. So, hmm, let's right now, let's wrap all this back into the individual and mimetic desire. The hidden desiring models, they go to work and you develop a fantasy to have the coveted goal or person or object, whatever you want. But now you must make the story in your head align with reality because of course, what you think is who you are, right? So we convert the desire into a blueprint and we build ourselves adding turrets and moats and bridges and cameras, I don't know what. And your architecture is inscribed now with violence, defensive and offensive postures, deterrence and welcoming sort of walled gardens, if you will. And of course, to be truly left alone, you must become brutalist architecture, a massive monolith. <laughs> uh, and even that though is a provocation to somebody. So some people, some predators, Maybe appearing as a guileless mirage, they're going to be using the camouflage of language to dazzle and confuse, and they're going to be gaining access only to plunder. And thus we must design ourselves anew. So then we imagine and simulate a more complex self. Perhaps we're prickly one time, perhaps we're gooey the next. We're repeatedly desimulating our own image form into reality. Side note. The very person who is considered healthy in the categories of an alienated world, from the humanistic standpoint, appears as the sickest one. That's from Eric Fromm. Now, as a paraphrase, of course, like on an individual level, the sick one is sane if a, quote, normal society actually alienates people. So that is, if your normalcy requires alienation behind the walls of your castle, you do not live in a humanistic society, no matter what people say. The seeming structure of democracy or humanistic individualism, even of liberty or freedom, I mean, these can just as easily become a costume. It's really just a shell of a concept into which anyone can slide. And this kind of incepts, Trojan horse style, any number of confused ideas into a role. And this modifies the stereotype over time, creating reactive counters and so on and so on. We know how it works, right? At some point, when you feel that this is all madness, that we're all just fucked, well, yeah, you're right. Uh, now, at this at some point, this recognition is really just sanity, which is kind of unfortunately destructive in this current environment because it's an acidic force in an insane land. When you are asking for reasons, it erodes the unconsidered scaffolding of belief because it exposes the emperor's hiney here, right? But let's say, given Janae's play, even the debauchery of the administrators did not cause people to lose faith in the symbolic structure of the administrator. And this tells you that people secretly want their politicians to provide the scandal. Part three, the state as autonomous image. A second ago, we were speaking of people who camouflage their intent using dissembling under a cloud of words to dazzle or confuse you, right? Now, this is a type of costume like Jean Genet's administrators. This is a word costume of a politician. So, or maybe a salesman, right? 
But anyway, let's uh, look for a minute at a society that actually props up empty people as their rulers. Naturally, at this point, we become caught up in the black magic of symbolic exchange, kind of Baudrillard style. We're divested of the original motivating force, and we're merely following the laid out script. We're enacting a series of deadlocked morality plays. But speaking of society, first, maybe we should clarify that the state is not society. I can often mix those up. It is geographically bound. That is the state. It's a semi-permeable envelope of limits, while society is a social and cultural fractal that's dispersing through the constituted or legal demarcation of power. Yeah, that's a lot of words. So the idea here is that they are entangled, but within the limits of the state is how our society moves. And in this way, the state manifests our desires and promotes our dysfunctions. Now, in the little parable of Jean Genet's The Balcony, the people are welcoming of the image form, right? What happens is the sun rises and the right garb appears, and incidental of the actual person wearing the garment, we are grasping for the predictable, which tends to let people know that we are empowering affect or affectation, the outer or superficial appearance. It champions the aesthetic into manifesting its archetypical cliché. So maybe as an example here, you can think that Bill Clinton was precisely what we wanted him to be. He was charming both in and out of the White House. Now, so was George W. Bush, right? Maybe not charming, but he was exactly what people wanted him to be. It has also been said that populist leaders like Hitler or even Trump are really these kind of like power-hungry but empty vessels that are taking on the imprint of society. So society creates the character from this malformed putty into a trope, and then the person can't turn back from it. Because what happens is once they are created, we worship or demonize them like some golden calf, some sort of god that we made. Now you can see where this process can manufacture the image, right? It's very valuable. The appearance as primary. It becomes very useful itself because the image doesn't have any guts. There is nothing internal to it. It can always be co-opted. And of course, since we primarily believe in the image form expressed, it's really odd to think of the new gods that we manifest, right? I mean, because the question here is, do we subconsciously wish for a sadomasochistic state? Because we aren't dreaming up virtue here. We're dreaming up reality television. But yeah, I don't know, right? This is all kind of weird because maybe this is all giving humans a lot of credit or maybe not enough credit. Uh, what if we took this a little more out there? And what if we said instead, the state is manifesting its own goals. It's producing and executing its own image forms and creating its own fantasies and dissimulating them into reality. Woohoo, writer, sounds like you said the state is sentient. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. I mean, if in its own complexity it has types of intelligence and we merely serve it, then I don't know, what is that? What is that, right? Because as Marx would say, a long time ago, we were already serving the machines of labor, of capital. And you might also think of the managerial or bureaucratic state. It kind of supplies and demands decentralization, this kind of spreading out, and it uses human cogs to expand the machine. So the goals of the machine become our desire because we're embedded with them, right? We have seen the fantasy and we must now make it real. We now dream the machine's dreams. In the factory or the workplace, we not only serve the robot, but maybe jealously, mimetically, we mirror it. We long to be the simulacra of man, right? This is the robust tin man where we're all efficient and we're shiny, superficial reason, and we have no messy heart. 
Bratton says, socially, as individuals, we have our role in society reflected back to us. For example, like maybe we're seen as a Republican plumber or a liberal artist. And once that role has been assigned to you, you're encouraged into it further and further. You're championed for the things that play into that role and denied the things that don't, right? So you're entrenched as cogs within these social roles. Now, this is a reductionist, image prejudiced kind of, uh, which is like stereotyping you on your appearance. It drives us into a rut or groove so deeply channeled that sometimes we cannot escape. Because we happen to mirror ourselves and see ourselves as society sees us, which is mimetically, we desire what the others desire, and they desire us to be a simplistic character, a one-dimensional man. So, to be happy, we fulfill the image. If all you can imagine is the machine, well, you cannot imagine your escape. So, kind of accelerationist or futurist style, you simulate and desimulate merging with the machine. Now, amplified to the state level, uh, in the balcony, for instance, the state becomes a sadomasochistic image that we demanded. It is the aestheticization of politics in the sort of Walter Benjamin sense, the simulacra of politics. And as many thinkers have mentioned, the fear is that the state is not humanistic, but transhuman. It's outside of human, and that the trains will run because they must. Humans be damned. Yeah, this is kind of scary, right? Because in this regard, the corporate integration into state bureaucracy and infrastructure, it's so thickly ossified that in an inverse sense, the government runs itself, much like one of these well-decentralized companies, much like the machine. Now, from the accelerationists again, we can see that humans are merely denying our obsolete role. If you really look around, we are rooting around in the bones of an industrial supply chain that can care less about where we left our hearts. And like, as a matter of fact, it kind of thinks you're better off without it the goods will be produced and delivered, sans mankind. <laughs> so this is like this uh, kind of Black Mirror episode, right, where Amazon is continue shipping packages far past humans having to send packages too, right? Eventually, the humans are actually just going to hinder the speedy package delivery. In this kind of comma-tragic fashion, humans will be executed for the sake of efficiency so Amazon can continue to get better and do its thing. So what happens here too is in our kind of capitalist system, it hints that our autonomous logics, our hyperbolic instantiated programmatic competitions, that, that is really when we're trying to find the fastest way to get something done. The programs that run these machines program them to be literally greedy for resources and efficiencies so they can autonomously figure out ways to do things better and faster, just like a good capitalist. And what that means is they have to combat other machines. And eventually these programs will be the only others to combat. Once those pesky consumers are removed, that is. <laughs> so the convoluted point is, uh, I'm sorry, this is kind of rambling at this point. Uh, the convoluted point is, as stated earlier, the state limits society, and yet society projects the image form that shapes the state into reality. From the aesthetic simulation, this is the image form, we have produced the state as a machinic corporation because it's all we could imagine. And just like designing architecture, we have imagined and implanted it with autonomous defenses, like a castle or a vault, which provokes violent attacks and challenges. And because we imagined it robust and machinic and eternal, even without humans to hold down the roles, this Leviathan is going to live on. It has the appearance of life, of purpose. And just like Janae's sex worker, wearing the judge's wig, 
The worker is the authority granted by the state. All right, thank you very much for your time on this one. I find all these ideas compelling, of course, otherwise I wouldn't be talking about them. But yeah, thank you again. I know we kind of dropped off on a bit of a dark note there, so sorry, not sorry. I don't know, this isn't exactly a happy ending type of podcast. <laughs> but when uh, we finally do, you know, like figure out the meaning of the world and the universe and everything, it's like maybe not 42, but something. Well, we can look back and chuckle at those days when we thought humanity had handed its soul over to the machines. <laughs> those will be good times, right? So yeah. Once again, I owe you the episode on camouflage, um, and I'm going to pull together a few ideas here, but most of it's already written. But I'm also sort of going to caution you. One of the things I'll talk about in that one is that we're not actually trying to solve all contradictions and discover all models because that will not save you, which is fascinating to think about. So we can chat about that next episode as well uh, on top of the camouflage thing. Too much stuff, too many ideas. All right, so um, I nearly forgot. If you enjoyed the show today, Please like, rate, subscribe, comment, do a little dance, make a little love. Yeah, and of course, we're on YouTube, and there are written summaries of each podcast on the website at letusthinkaboutit.com. And of course, you know how this part works, too, because if you appreciated the content, please consider giving a one-time $5 donation to sort of keep this ship afloat. And of course, if you could offer up a monthly $5 donation, well, I could actually get some fuel in the tank. Okay, until then, stay safe and be dangerous.